Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Transitioning to University. This is Connor Watson. These episodes will aim to provide first-year university students with effective techniques for success in the university setting. The rationale underlying why I decided to do a series of recordings directed towards assisting first-year university students is fourfold. First, I have found that most first-year students enter university unprepared. Second, I have older siblings who had attended post-secondary educational institutions before myself, which provided me with a taste of what to expect. Third, as a student mentor at York University, I have anecdotal evidence of the benefits that first-year students gain from experienced students. And finally, and in relation to the third reason, Studies have found that first-year university students who have been assigned an upper-year student mentor indeed complete their first year with significantly higher GPAs than first-year students who have not been assigned a mentor. Though I cannot be sure of how many episodes I will record, one thing I can assure is that the individuals who will be interviewed have all been extremely successful throughout their undergraduate career. The individual that I have selected for the first episode is Robert Berta. Directly from high school, Robert attended Ottawa University and then transferred to the University of Toronto, otherwise known as U of T, one year later. Robert graduated with a double major in criminology and sociology. While doing so, Robert not only maintained a job at Granoli Law Firm, but also played competitive level hockey. As of September 2018, Robert is attending Bond Law at Bond University in Australia. He plans on graduating from Bond and then practicing law in Canada following the standardized Canadian legal examinations. In terms of formatting, this interview will be semi-structured thematically, discussing advice with regards to orientation week, that is, frosh week, getting involved in socializing, time management, listening and note-taking, participation, and studying. These topics are extremely important for not only success in first year, but also throughout university, and oftentimes, life in general. Following the interview with Robert, this episode will end with a 10-minute excerpt from a Harvard conversation with Dr. Jordan Peterson. So, Without further delay, I bring you Robert Verda. Hi, Robert. So let's just jump right into it. So in terms of orientation week, what are some do's and don'ts that you tried to follow or that you would recommend to your first year self? Uh, first, first thing and most important, I would say get involved at the school. So usually each university has some kind of um, like clubs day. Go to that, check out what they have. If you're interested in any sports or any clubs specifically, inquire at the school. Usually you can go to your registrar and they'll know. Or just go on the website. Um, for don'ts, I'd probably say don't hang around like a bunch of people that you already know. Go out, extend your uh, your friend group, meet more people. 
and that also comes in like at frosh week you're gonna meet a bunch of people so don't just keep into one little one little group um get to know as many people as you can because at the end of the day those are going to be your networks mm-hmm. for the rest of your time there mm-hmm. and you also don't know who's going to be in your program who's not going to be in your program things like that so you played, played hockey, hockey at u of t uh, did you play hockey at ottawa no so first mistake i made when i went to ottawa one i didn't do frosh week two i didn't get involved with the school at all like i didn't do any intramural sports i basically was just like come home do my studies, go to school. And it was like class, work, class. That was it. There was nothing else. Uh, U of T, I was like, I'm going to definitely change up what I'm doing because the university experience was awful. When I went to Ottawa, missing out on all of that. So U of T, I did Frosh Week. Then I went and I figured out when hockey was. And we had intramurals. And we had like just the normal intramural within the school. And then we had a development league for varsity. So I found out when tryouts were for D-League and then went tried out and that's actually where I met pretty much all my buddies. And U of T, the good thing about that is they had a bridging program too for academics. It was called Woodsworth One. And essentially that was like a bridge from high school to university. So I met a lot of friends there because it was just a small, like 30 people in your class. You also met people of... uh an older age group when you played on the hockey team and stuff that were in your program and had taken courses that you could get advice from, right? Yeah. So one of my best <laughs> friends, actually, I met him, he was my D partner and we met playing hockey and he kind of was just like, he guided me through my undergrad cause he actually took criminology as well. So he had all like past notes and stuff like that, that I could take a look at. He recommended what professors um, I would do well with what professors to stay away from. I mean, things like that. It's all personal preference again on what kind of professor you want to have. But uh, for me, it was mostly essay writing profs. So I stuck with that and uh, I did well with that. And then even going, applying to law school and stuff like a lot of the guys uh, that took those programs ended up going to law school after. So it was just a good connection that way. And they're a little older, a little wiser so mm-hmm. gives you a good good understanding of like what you need to expect so that's a, a good, good way to touch on the socialization aspect of uh getting into school so what would you say in terms of getting into studies in the first week what would you say about getting your books and getting organized and getting prepared um personally i always went out and just if i knew i was going to stick with the course i'd go out and i'd buy my textbook right away I'd usually buy them used from the bookstore, but I wasn't one of those people who would be like, oh, I'm going to wait, you know, two weeks in to get my books. I always had my books and I'd get on top of my readings right away because after that first week, you think you're relaxing, but really you're not. It, you kind of just get thrown right into it. Mm-hmm. And once you fall behind <clears throat> in university, you're you're behind. So try to stay on top of your readings or at least as much as you can. You're never going to get every single reading done, but at least try to zone in on the important ones. Usually that's what they cover in lecture and what's in your syllabus for the reading. Yeah. So that's one thing I'd recommend too is I usually went to my first lecture before I bought my books because there was sometimes where the professor would say, you know, you don't need that book, so don't worry about it. Or I'll send that book out on PDF because you're only reading a couple chapters from it and things like that. But I also think... Um, 
it's important to uh, be prepared because when you don't have your books in the first couple of weeks, there's a lot of professors who will honestly try to sabotage you and they'll give you four chapters or, you know, 150 pages to an individual course per week on some dense material. So uh, you don't want to fall behind when, uh, when you have professors who try to do things like that. <clears throat> it's also important, I think, to get your gym membership and stuff early as well, because you don't want to be, I mean, the first week of school, you're waiting in line for everything anyway. So you just want to kind of get into it. So, I mean, if you can prepare and get there sooner than other people, you know, because the bookstore, if you can get there on the weekend, you know, no one's there. Um, the gym, same thing, get there on the weekend. So uh, those are other tips to uh, trying to get prepared, but avoiding all the time wasting that comes uh, with getting prepared because all the first years are going to be, you know, um, all in the bookstore, all getting their gym membership at the same time. So, okay. Um, so I figure that'll be, maybe that'll be a good transition right into socializing. So what did you, uh, what did you do in terms of socializing? Cause clearly you said you went to Ottawa and you didn't really socialize much for the one year that you were there, but then you went to U of T and you did way more socializing. So what did you, uh, uh, how did you socialize? Like was it purely sports? Did you go out? Well, it's definitely a mix between both. So the first week, not knowing anybody going to U of T, um, I got into Frosh Week. And then from there, I figured out again all the sports and when that was happening. And then after a couple of weeks in, once I've established kind of like a social network, it would be, you know, go for dinner, go for lunch, grab a bite in between classes whatever it may be and then afterwards it would be party on the weekends but to an extent i mean you don't want to party like thursday friday saturday maybe pick a day or two like mm -hmm. maybe thursday night and then saturday night as long as you know you can stay on top of all your stuff but when it got into exam period or like midterms usually just shut it down for that little bit and really like just focus on getting your work done yeah i think <clears throat> that's a good way to you know hint at time management too you know if you're socializing you can't be out thursday friday saturday and sunday because a lot of people have this image that you you know you hear all the time oh i want that university experience you know it's not if you want to do well in university it's not just games and parties but on the other hand, you do need to have fun because they're probably going to be the most enjoyable years of your life. You're going to meet great friends and you're going to, you know, see some new things and have some great experiences with those friends. But if you don't make it to second year, all of that disappears, you know. So you need to make sure that you're uh, uh, managing your time accordingly uh, in terms of socializing and uh, your work balance, you know. So let's get into time management. Um, why is time management so important? Oh, that's a tough question, I guess. But I mean, essentially, like if you're not managing your time, one, you're going to fall behind, then you're just going to be stressed. And then that's usually where people feel like they can't cope. And that's why I think a lot of people drop out. They just get overwhelmed. And then they're like, oh, I'm two or three weeks behind now. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but if you treat it like a full-time job, that was my mentality. 
I'd wake up early, like eight o'clock. I would just get my work done from nine to five or nine to six, whatever it was. After that, then I'd have my nights free. And like I'd play hockey at night or dodgeball or whatever it may be, go to the gym or go out or just like lay in bed and watch Netflix. So definitely treat it like a, like it's a job and Mm -hmm. get like, if that's how you function, if not, then I don't know, just designate like eight hours a day to whatever you have to do or just look and be like look I have you know two readings for tomorrow's class I'll do my readings the night before class yeah so what did you do to manage your time so effectively because I mean you had a job um that you worked often you know there was times where you were working four days a week and there was other times where you're working two days a week so how did you manage your job sports socializing school um, I think those were the four, right? Yeah. Yeah. How did you manage those so effectively? So I knew what days I was going to work. So say I worked Tuesday and I had a 10 hour day. I started at seven and I end up five. Um, I would know that my weekend needs to be used efficiently and I need to get all like, not all, but most of my work done during that weekend. And I mean, if you actually do your work, there's no reason why um, your weekend can't be productive and then you kind of lay back during the week a little bit like really you have if you're not in like a math or a science and you're in like uh, like criminology or sociology or political science a lot of the times you only have your readings to do and then everything else comes from class and lecture and so yeah I would say I don't know, it's just figure out like how much work you have and what the amount of time, how long it takes you to read. So say if you mm-hmm. have a hundred page reading and you're like, oh, this will take me two hours, designate two hours either in the morning or at night, get your readings done, highlight whatever is important. If you're one of those people that types out your notes then type them out. I used to just use Siri. I'd go into my notes on my iPhone I'd highlight everything while I read and then I'd plug my headphones in and just talk to my phone and it would just type out the notes for me. Mm -hmm, The voice recognition. Yeah. So did you use an agenda? No, never had an agenda. I would type out all of my, so I'd have five classes a semester. I'd go through my syllabus. I'd put all my due dates on a paper and organize it by class and by date. And then I would just keep on track like, okay, I have, you know, a paper coming up on October 15th, but I also have an, a midterm on the 17th and a midterm on the 18th. So, you know, you get the paper done a week in advance and then you don't have to worry about it. And then you usually can spend, depending on how heavy the midterm is, two days per midterm studying. Um, yeah, so. So you kind of had a mental agenda. You didn't yeah. have a physical, you know, day timer, but you definitely had a plan in your head as to, you know, deadline and what you needed to prepare for. I would recommend to first year students definitely get an agenda. It's so cliche, but I think it's an absolute necessity. You know, for me, I would start off every year by getting all of my syllabi, syllabi together and then. Um, writing all the due dates, exam dates, paper dates, you know, quizzes or whatever, as well as um, lecture and tutorial periods 
into my agenda so I could, because then you get on a schedule, you know exactly, you know, I have two hours between these classes and then you know that you can maybe get a reading or two done in between that break and you can get your weeks, you know, all seven days a week organized on uh, a military schedule. You know exactly what time you have to spend for socializing, you know exactly what blocks of time you spend uh, preparing for this class and that class. And then obviously that changes when, um, exams come up and papers come up. But the thing is, is a lot of times you'll have a paper and three exams due in one week. And if you don't have some sort of, uh, whether it's a day timer or like you, you printed out, you know, uh, deadlines on a piece of paper. If you don't have that visually prepared, you, you know, you just get into that week and then you go, holy, I have all of this stuff to do. You know, I wasn't prepared. I didn't, I didn't expect because people just don't pay attention. You know, they just lose track of time and time just flies by and things come up, you know, a paper or you think that reading that'll take you two hours, that hundred page reading that'll take you two hours. It's way more dense with way so much new information that you haven't ever interacted with that it takes you four and a half hours, you know, because you have no idea what you're reading. And so you're looking up so many definitions and so many different concepts. So you need in my opinion, to have some sort, whether it's a mental agenda, if you can do that, <clears throat> I was definitely a physical type of daytimer guy, but you definitely need to have something um, to uh, organize your days and set out blocks of time to work through your seven days a week, whether that's doing time, uh, doing your uh, studies on the weekend or, you know, doing it during the week in between classes or, you know, um, because I mean, in my experience, Fridays were virtually a write-off for everyone. People would work in, until 1 p.m. when they could have worked until 6 p.m. You know, there's so much extra time there that they can actually use. I think the most important thing for that, though, too, is just go to class and go to your tutorials and be prepared when you go to your tutorials. Don't just show up and, you know, expect to say, I don't know, some nonsense about whatever. True. Like, mm-hmm. go there and have something meaningful to say because it's easy grades. Yeah. Like, so how did you prepare for tutorials and seminars? I'd usually just ask my friends what they were doing. I would do my own readings or whatever. And then when I was done all my work, I'd touch base with a couple friends in the class and be like, this is where I think I'm going with my answers. What do you guys think? And we kind of bounce them off each other. Mm-hmm. And then from there, just do your reading, whatever reading the prof is assigning for that tutorial i mean you don't really need to sit there and be a keener unless you're one of those people who answers every single question Mm -hmm. um but definitely answer like one or two at least just to get those marks in because like 10 percent, you get a full 10 percent usually or even 20 in some classes just for showing up and saying oh uh you know i agree with this author this is the reasoning why but um it would have been interesting if they would have explored this alternative. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a number of things there that are important because participation, sometimes your tutorial leader is your professor. So, and it's extremely important to get to know your professor and we'll get on that in a second. But the thing is, is when you participate and you say what you think, it allows you to actually make mistakes that other people can correct. So, Let's say you, uh, the tutorial leader asks you to summarize a reading and you go to do so and you're actually wrong on one front, then someone else can say, oh, I actually thought 
this was uh, the answer to that, or this was a better summary of that. And then you, you hear it and you think, oh, wow, that actually is. And then you can take those notes as well. So when you participate, your errors can actually get corrected, right? Um, and so, yeah, how important is it to get to know your professors and why? I'd say very important. I mean, you don't have to be best friends with them, but at least make sure they know your name. Don't, a lot of people are like, oh, on the first day, go up and introduce yourself to the prof. No, the prof, (laughs) no, (laughs) the profs know that like, you're just going to go up and be like, oh, hi, I'm, you know, so-and-so. And then they're going to be like, okay, and they'll forget your name by the next week. It's like, go into their office hours, sit there, ask some questions, but don't be the annoying kid who just goes there just to, to brown nose. Like yeah. if you're going there, have a, a question down in your head or written down somewhere and pick your prof's brain on that. But don't just show up just to be like, hi, nice to meet you. I'm in your class. Cause they're not going to really care. They're going to have thousands of students every semester and the only way you're really going to get to know them is in their office hours. Mm-hmm. Even your TAs, especially because your TAs aren't really much older than, than you. They might be like three, four years older at most, which could be like an older, older sibling, essentially. And a lot of the times they just sit in their office bored out of their mind <laughs> because they have no students coming in. So they just end up doing their own work. So they appreciate when students come in and ask them questions and stuff. But obviously you don't go in and ask them questions that would waste their time yeah and in terms because you're uh, going to law school in two days um and you need a reference yeah references your profs are going to be um your references for basically any graduate program you want to get into um so yeah that's another thing you're going to have to be on good terms with a lot of, not a lot, but like at least one or two of your profs that they'd be willing to recommend you for the program and write you a good, good reference letter. So, Mm -hmm. and that's the thing for me is, uh, you actually have to get a reference that you think is going to be honest, but also, uh, expansive because every professor is going to say, if you're getting a reference letter from a professor, they already know you're a good student or else they wouldn't write it in my opinion. And so all of them are going to say that this person's a good student. So you need to um, separate yourself from the masses and, you know, do that extra, you know, go to their office hours and, you know, uh, talk to them about, uh, you know, things that you thought about in the reading that maybe weren't discussed in tutorial, you know, show that you're actually thinking about the material and engaging with it. And, you know, um, that'll uh, definitely separate you from... uh, the masses when you're going to get a reference letter because they won't just say this person's a good student they'll say like you know this person's always thinking about the material definitely committed definitely a good student because you know law schools don't want to take just students who are good they want to they want to hear that the student's going to make their school look good too someone who's dedicated to what they do so you definitely want a better reference letter than everyone else and part of that is the professor actually knowing you and you should be careful of what profs you get it from like yeah. there, there are some profs that, you know, you might really like, um, but outside of the university, they, they cause a lot of, I guess, controversy <laughs> is the best way to put it, where they might not be well liked in the academic stream. 
It's so funny you think that because I'm such a fan of Jordan Peterson, but I feel like if you were to get a reference letter from him right now, certain law schools, for example, Queens, would because he had that huge controversy with the law school at Queens, they uh, they wouldn't necessarily be fond of that. But I mean, whatever, you know, but I just think some professors might actually sabotage you, you know, they'll just be like, he's a good student. And they know that they're if they're writing five reference letters, you know, they you can kind of rank order them as to which is the best reference letter. So I think, yeah, you're definitely right. You need to be careful. You need to know that your professor actually thinks that you're intelligent and doesn't just like you. And make sure you're the, the professor's tenured too. Yeah, true. The last thing you want to do is get one that's get a reference letter from a prof that's not tenured. And then essentially it just, it doesn't have as much weight. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is, because you're a first year transitioning at this point, you need to, uh, you know, you're going to need to be in touch with the professor for three, four years. Why is good note taking so important? Saves you time at the end when you go back through after, you know, 12 weeks or whatever it is, and you're looking back through your notes, um, you don't really have to study and relearn the material as much if you take good notes. And then you also know what exactly the prof said um, in lecture or whatever. So it makes studying just a lot easier. Whereas if you don't take your notes or some you get your notes from somebody else, then you're trying to relearn uh, what they've learned from mm-hmm. the professor. So it's almost like a trickle down yeah. way of learning, which I mean, if you're in a pinch and you need notes, that's good. But other than that, I would say go to lecture. Like most of your stuff, most of the learning is going to be from lecture. So that's like, I know university is one of those things, you know, they don't take attendance. You don't have parents around to be like, go to class, go to class. Um, but you got to think you're paying for it. When you break it down, it's it's like $700 almost per course. So, um, you got to think you should probably be going to class if you're paying that much money. Um, the one thing I did that I found was extremely useful, just a, another trick, was uh, if you have a course that's going to be using a specific word that's long... You can find, just Google how to create a shortcut on your keyboard. If you're, if you're writing, if you're physically writing notes with your hand, then you're going to need to create acronyms and short forms for specific words. I know people who did symbols for words like the and 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 things like that, because there's no point in writing those words down. They actually waste time. And the people who are typing, if they're good typers, have such an advantage over the people who are writing. But that's also specific per program. So, for example, I had a course, uh, an Indigenous Studies course, and the word Indigenous, every time I tried to type it, it would always come up uh, incorrect because it's just you're clicking the same letters here. Like, you're clicking I all the time, and you know what I mean? So I just always typed it wrong. So I created this shortcut in my phone that, or sorry, in my uh, laptop, if I typed I-N-D space, it would just do it for me, and then I would just you know what I mean you're you're ahead of the curve when you're writing your notes if you have a ton of short forms because you know sometimes you're in classes like crime science technology and the professor keeps using that and if you just could type cst and then it's space and then it does it for you you know you're you don't even have to waste time writing that word into your laptop um how were you an active listener 
Well, first year when I went to Ottawa, my whole thing was, oh, I got to sit at the front because I'll stay engaged. Because um, if you sit at the back, a lot of the time you see other people's laptops open and people are scrolling on Facebook and this and that. But you really got to think you only need to be focused in class. You might have like your longest lecture is going to be three hours. And a lot of profs don't run that and you'll get a 15 minute break, I think, at every hour. So really, you only need to be focused for like 45 minutes at a time. So if you can't give up your social media or your phone or whatever, like put your phone on silent, get off your social media and just sit there and listen to the prof because that could be your only class of the day. So you only need to be focused for like a total of an hour and a half of your whole day. So I think that just comes down to self-discipline. Mm-hmm. Um I think, yeah, I definitely sat in the front. It's so much easier because a lot of the professors, they'll talk to specific people when they teach. They'll look at you and then just that level of engagement of the professor looking at you, it kind of keeps you from... And also when you're in the front row, there's kind of that nervous aspect to if you go on your phone, they're right there. You know, you can't hide behind anything and go on your phone. Um, And yeah, there's definitely uh, less distraction when you're in the front. So another way that I uh, found active listening and active note-taking, a good strategy for those was relating what the professor is talking about to an example that I've experienced in my life. So criminology was a good one, you know. They're talking about certain crimes and you've either seen something on a movie or maybe experienced something in your life and you just write example when... Let's say you uh, had done graffiti before and we're talking about uh, broken windows theory. I could put example when Rob was caught graffitiing a wall and had to clean it up. You know, things like that to uh, get you a real life example of the theories you're talking about. It's so much easier for your studying and you can then you listen and you can actively listen because you know exactly what they're talking about. It's not just this abstract theory. So there's always that that, uh, that advantage to uh, finding some real-life examples that you've experienced or seen on movies and things like that to contribute to the lecture material. Yeah, the thing you brought up about movies is good too. I found a lot of the times if I didn't understand uh, a theory or whatever, I would type it in on YouTube. And there's usually TED Talks or there's other professors at another university Um that break it down for you and give you real life examples and might explain it in a way that you'll understand. Like I remember I was doing, there was some theory for criminology and I wasn't really understanding it the way my prof was explaining it. So I looked it up and there was this professor from Michigan university and they explained it like in the most simple way possible. And it really helps. So if you don't understand something, look at all your, your options. And I would say, don't solely rely on YouTube, but definitely use YouTube and TED Talks mm-hmm. to break it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, how did you take notes in terms of what to write down? Um, because... I would down. I would usually download, like our profs put the slides up before. Mm-hmm. So there's no point, whatever the prof has on the slides, if they're going to post it after, don't waste your time typing out or writing out whatever is on the slide listen to what they're saying and then type out whatever they're saying or like the things that you think are if they're giving you an example or they give you two or three only write down one Mm -hmm. um you don't need to write down what they say word for word 
but kind of just summarize it quickly. Exactly. And I think you'll, you'll eventually, and this is why it's important to do your readings. You'll eventually realize how professors structure their lectures. So some professors will structure their lecture specifically around chapters and they'll just expand on the details about chapters and certain readings. But then other times you'll have a professor who uses the readings to get into more detail about their lecture. So there'll be, they'll touch on one thing and then they'll have an entire chapter on that specific topic. Whereas obviously other profs just expand on the certain topic from the chapter. So if you do your reading and go to class prepared, you'll know how the professor is structuring their lecture by like week three. And most of the time, the things you're tested on are the things that are in the reading as well as in the lecture. That that overlap is usually the important things. Yeah, and if you do your readings before you go to class, you can pick up on that. I mean, you can do them after, but I always found that after, like there was only one professor that I ever did the readings after I went to lecture. Other than that, it would be either the morning before class or the night before class that I would do my reading, do all like my notes or whatever I had to do. Um, And then you kind of just you go to class and you can not sit back and like relax a little bit, but you can engage with the material a little more and be like, oh, okay, yeah, he said this was in the reading. Or if the prof is talking, you can be like example seen in so and so's article from this week mm-hmm. see notes exactly. and then you just go back and you reference like that it makes your studying way more easier come exam time in terms of studying let's transition to that when you have your notes what would you recommend for preparing for studying i'll start it off just by saying it's if you have an exam 14 weeks into school don't wait for a week before the exam to start preparing the notes because If you prepare your notes and you condense them after four weeks of having the lecture or after a month here and there, then you can, the material isn't so foreign to you when you go back from 13 weeks before. So what would you say in terms of uh, studying for the exams? Uh, Well, first of all, it depends on how your prof's going to set up the exam. So that again comes back to First year, you're not going to know what profs you like. You might be forced to take classes with certain profs. So just a general tip for your first year, I would say review your notes like at least every two weeks. You don't have to sit there and like memorize them or anything, but just read them through. So you're like, oh, okay, yeah, like I remember, you know, whatever Professor Watson talked about two weeks ago mm-hmm. or even before you go to class, like open your notes from the last week just skim through them and be like okay yeah we talked about this and then you go to class and you're kind of refreshed a little bit but most of the times I don't think you'll ever have a prof that gives you one test or two tests the entire time usually it's like every two to three weeks you have a new assignment or something due and it focuses on whatever the past two to three weeks have been so it kind of gives you if you have a good professor, they break it up like that. If not, you might just have a midterm, a paper, participation, and a final exam, and that's it. So for that, I would just say review every two weeks. Like rule of thumb, two weeks, skim over whatever. You don't have to go through your readings and everything, but just touch on it just mm-hmm. so you're brushing up. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because then when when it comes time to really crack down to studying, you're already familiar with it because you've learned it in the class and you've already taken your notes and then you've already reviewed your notes. And also, um, as a side note, students who are able to relate current the current material to previous weeks are the students who separate themselves from everyone else. TAs and professors love that. If students are able to say, oh, this reminds me of this reading when he talked about or she talked about this, that's really impressive in uh, most TA and professors' eyes. Also, I wouldn't fret too much on your marks going down in your first year, especially from high school. I mean, high school is virtually a breeze for most people. Uh, They can get by without studying and do well. But in first year university, it's definitely a shock. You know, your marks, most times people's marks will drop and it's the students who did really well in high school whose marks drop the most. Yeah, like expected 10%, I think rule of thumb, 10% drop in your, your marks. Some people say, oh, well, my grades went up, but I think those, it could, but most of the time those people are lying. Like just... It's a lot harder than high school. I know kids, you might be coming from a private school, a very prestigious high school. Doesn't matter. We had, we went to university with kids who went to public schools, who went to high-end private schools. And at the end of the day, everybody's grades dropped. But again, it also comes down to like how much time you want to put into it and how dedicated you are. Definitely just en- enjoy like the experience. Do your work but don't get caught up in like, I need to do my work or else I'm going to fail. Like there needs to be a good balance between the two. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things that's so important about that too is don't listen to what everybody else is saying their grades are because that could just like, everybody's going to inflate their grades and then you're going to get discouraged. Like, Oh, well, you know, so-and-so all my friends are getting eighties and why am I getting I'm stuck in the 70s and I can't get out of there. Um, I think most of the time people inflate their grades by 5% at least just so they seem smarter than they actually are. At least like U of T was like that. I had friends that all through university, they're like, oh, you know, I'm on dean's list. I'm on dean's list. I'm on dean's list. And then at the end, when we all graduated, they didn't graduate with distinction. (laughs) And it's just like, well, she's like, wow, you lied to me that whole time. It's funny. There's a rule in 12 rules for life by Jordan Peterson. And it says, uh, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not someone else today. And it's exactly like what you're talking about. You can't, you're not the same as everyone else. You know, for example, Rob played hockey, did his socializing, had a job, still did school and he was commuting to his job so there's so many different aspects of his life that separate him from every other person and then he has a relationship and your life is so idiosyncratic you're so one of one that you can't compare yourself to anyone else just compare yourself to who you were yesterday rather than that guy has five percent more than me it's like I got 1% better on that exam than I did that paper because that's how you'll actually improve because there's no point in comparing to someone else. They're literally completely different than you. Yeah. Um, so just to end the studying for an exam section, I would say that final exams are kind of similar to uh, big sporting events in the sense that you need to think of the final semester exam 
as this big sporting event that you need to prepare for in advance. You need to have the proper sleep. You need to have good health. You can't be eating like You need to uh, uh, get your proper sleep in. And the thing is, is those two, uh, they're you know, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They influence each other. If you're not getting good sleep, if you're not eating good, you're not going to get good sleep. And if you're not getting good sleep and not eating good, then you're likely going to get sick, which is not going to make you eat good and not going to help you have good sleeps. So you need to prepare as if it's a physical event because you need to have the, well, mental durability to uh, get through some exams because they're stressful. I left most exams with a headache. And my eyes were sore and my arm was sore. Because you get in there and you have a time limit. And sometimes the time limit's too short. So everything, every part of your body's working. And the last thing you need is some impediment to that. Because you didn't get enough sleep or you didn't eat properly that day. Yeah, take some personal time to like study. If you're going to grind for like eight hours, grind for eight hours. And then take, you know, two or three to go to the gym. Or just like cook yourself a nice dinner. Or watch Netflix or whatever you do to unwind. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing you want to do is think about the materials, you know, for three days at a time straight without doing anything else. You need a good mental uh, stress relief. So keep that in mind, too. After reading 12 Rules for Life, uh, there's a there's a chapter on treating yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. And it's like what you're saying. If you're going to grind so hard at studying for eight hours, you need to treat yourself as if, like if you told someone you need to study for eight hours, you would most likely say that and then say, and then I'll take you out for pizza, yeah. you know, or I'll take you out to your favorite cafe. Reward yourself. Exactly. You need to reward yourself. The aspect of that is looking at yourself like you're two people. You're negotiating with yourself as if you're a different person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to study for six hours today and then I'm going to go work out or then I'm going to go, you know, uh, watch some Netflix or something like that. You need to negotiate with yourself when it comes to studying because, you know, you were studying for Christ's sake. So, you know, reward yourself. Is there any other topics that you think we missed that you may want to talk about? The only other thing I would say is if you're doubting yourself at any point during your first year, it's normal. Like the amount of times I came, I would call like my parents or like Connor and be like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Just stick with it. Just keep going, chip away at it. Um, And just remember, like there are literally thousands of people that have done this and more than likely you are smarter than a large percent of them that have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, don't, don't, it's going to be overwhelming a little bit, but just stick with it after first and second year in social sciences, at least things get a lot easier, but don't, don't party like party and have fun while you're there and get involved with the school because these are going to be some of the most fun times of your life. But don't get uh, too caught up in the whole party atmosphere where you forget what you're there for. Mm-hmm. Anything else that you would tell first-year Robert Verda? <laughs> don't have a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, uh, For some people, having 
a partner or whatever could be takes a lot away from their academics and mm-hmm. I know it did in my like after my second year single Rob excelled everywhere so <laughs> my grades went up I had more time to focus on things I wanted to do and not have to worry about somebody else the entire time mm-hmm. that's that's the advice I'd give to myself yeah I mean to each your own exactly as long as you can find a healthy balance just just have fun like the have fun at university because the four years you think are going to drag out forever go really quick Mm-hmm. yeah for sure well it looks like we're at 48 minutes so it looks like it's a good time to stop because we only blocked out about 45 for the interview i appreciate you spending some time to do this today i know you're flying out to australia tomorrow um gonna take care of business at bond university gonna try there you go buddy well, thanks. I appreciate it. No worries. Good luck to all the first years. Well, that does it for the interview section of this episode. What follows is a 10-minute excerpt from a Harvard conversation with Dr. Jordan Peterson, which I would highly recommend giving a listen. So, Dr. Peterson, you mentioned these ideas of responsibility, of virtue, of respect. You've, I think, detailed what you think students shouldn't do in these examples of like protests and these examples of certain types of activist tactics. What advice would you have for students? How can students make the changes that they want to make? Particularly, do you have any advice for students here? Yeah, read great books. Mm -hmm. Really, man, you've got this four year period that that has been carved out of your lives by society. it's, It's given you an identity, like a high quality identity and freedom at the same time. And you're not gonna get that again in your life. You've got, a, you've got a respectable identity, university student, and complete freedom associated with that, or as near as you're ever going to get. And you've got these unbelievable libraries that are full of the writings of people mm-hmm. who, are, who are intelligent and articulate beyond comprehension. And you, know, and, and you can go there and you can learn all this. And you might think, well, why should you learn it? Um, well, you, you learn it to get a job, or you learn it to pe- get good grades, or you learn it to get a degree. And that's all nonsense. It's nonsense. The reason that you come to university to be educated is because there is nothing more powerful than someone who is articulate and who can think and speak. It's power. And I mean power of the best sort. It's authority and influence and respectability and competence. And so you come to university to craft your highest skill. And your highest skill is to be found in articulated speech. And if you're, if you're, if you're a master at formulating your arguments, you win everything. And better than that, when you win everything, everyone around you wins too. Because to transform yourself into, let's consider, consider your transformation into something approximating the logos. It means you shine a light on the whole world. Well, there's nothing more exciting to do than that. There's nothing better you can possibly do. And to think that you're coming to university to be you know, trained to have a job, it's like, great, that's a hell of a lot better than being unemployed and covered with Cheeto dust while you're <laughs> snacking away in front of your video game in the basement. But it's not, it's not a, and I don't have anything against video games, by the way. But, it, <laughs> but it's hardly a triumphant call to, to being in the world. And that's what universities should be calling forth. It's like, God, you people, you, you know, I, I know what Harvard students are like. I taught here for five years. You people are spectacular. You're spectacular. You're, 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 you're all capable of being world beaters. 
you transform yourself into something that's articulated and sensible and grounded in history and knowledgeable and wise, man, you can do anything you want, and hopefully anything you want for good. Because if you have any sense, everything you want to do would be for the good, because there's nothing more compelling or meaningful or, or useful in combating the tragedy of life than to, than to struggle with all your soul on behalf of the good. And the universities have forgotten that. It's why everyone's bailing out of the humanities, and they should. The humanities are corrupt. And they're corrupt because they're not telling students this. It's so bloody obvious. It's like, learn to think, learn to speak, learn to read. It makes you a superpower, an individual superpower. You have, it, it, and I don't understand why that isn't just told to students. It's not that hard to understand, and everyone wants to hear it. It's like, really? I could do that? I could do that? It's like, yeah, really, you could do that. And the whole society around you has labored for, really, thousands of years to provide every single one of you with this spectacular opportunity that you have while you're undergraduates and graduate students here. Mm -hmm. Man, they're just, everyone's just praying that you would come here and manifest everything that you could manifest. And that's what you should be doing, instead of waving placards and complaining about how you're oppressed, for God's sake. You see these Yale students complaining about their oppression. It's just, it just leaves me aghast. It's like, well, we're against the ruling class. It's like, no, 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 you're baby ruling class <laughs> members. You're young. <laughs> The only reason you're not rich is because you're young. You know, that's the best, really, that's the, if you look at the 1% even, the, the dreaded 1%, you know, most of those people are old. Why? Well, when you progress through life, if you're reasonably successful, you trade in your promising youth for your wealthy old age, but you're still bloody old. Would you, <laughs> would you trade it? Would you trade your youth for that? Like, if you factor age out of the economic equation, things look a lot different. Well, of course older people have more money. If they have any sense, they've been collecting it for their whole life. Is that somehow unfair? It's not unfair, unless you want to want to be poverty-stricken when you're 70. And you, and you don't want to be poverty-stricken when you're 70. So, I just don't understand what's happened to the universities. I can't mm -hmm. believe that you're not told when you come the first day, look, man, you are, you're here on a heroic mission. You're going to take your capacity to articulate yourself to levels that are undreamed of. You're going to come out of here unstoppable. You're going to be able to do anything you want. It's like, that's what you're here for. Mm -hmm. Instead, you're taught that, well, you know, the world's a pretty oppressive place, and you're probably the bottom of the victim pile, and, 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 there's, and there's, oh, there's virtually nothing you can do about it except, you know, deconstruct the patriarchy. And it's so weak deed and so pathetic that, that, that universities should be embarrassed that that's what they're peddling to students. I'm embarrassed by it. You know, I've, I've gone on public record telling parents, bloody well send your boys to trade school, because at least they'll learn something useful. And that's a terrible thing for someone like me to say, because I do believe that, the art, that being articulated and educated in the highest possible manner is, there's nothing that's better for you and for society. Mm -hmm. And why, are the, why have the universities forgotten this? Well, that's postmodern neo-Marxism for you, you know. <laughs> that, then the philosophy of intense resentment and oppression mm -hmm. and group identity and God, it's just mm -hmm. pathetic. Dr. Peterson, I think a lot of students here would agree with you that one of the main purposes of uh, education at college, particularly at Harvard, is to develop their sense of articulation, their ability to read, their ability to cri uh, critically think. 
But then what comes after? Particularly at Harvard, there's a big discussion on what is a good life? What does it mean to use those skills that we get here and then we graduate? What do we do from there? Stop, and I think, stop mm -hmm. unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. You know, that, so, that, that's your mm -hmm. calling. It's like you say, well, what do you do after you graduate? Well, if you graduate articulated and powerful, Mm -hmm. There will be people giving you so many opportunities, you won't even be able to keep up with them. You know, and, and, and I've worked with comp very, very competent people in many different domains in my life. Hyper-competent people. And I can tell you some very interesting things about hyper-competent people. The first thing is, they are not selfish, and they are not greedy. And one of the great pleasures in their lives is to find people who have the capacity to also be hyper-competent, and to open doors for them as rapidly as they can possibly be opened. They delight in that, because there is, there's nothing, there's, there's very few things that are more intrinsically meaningful mm -hmm. if you're an accomplished person than to find young people who have the possibility of being accomplished and say, hey, look, here's an opportunity for you. It's like, go out there, man, kill it. And then they go out there and kill it, and you think, right on, man. Here's another opportunity. Why don't you go out there and nail that, too? And you think, no, no, they're all hoarding their wealth, and they're not going to share it with anyone. It's like, that's absolute, complete rubbish. Mm -hmm. And so you don't even have to worry about what you're going to do after you graduate from here if you, if you turn yourself into half of what you could be, because people will be dying to offer you every opportunity that you can possibly make use of. So it's, it's, it's a moot point. The, the, the world is always desperately short of people who can think and speak. And, and you think, well, I, that, I won't be made use of. Well, you, first of all, you can't say that if you're, at, if, if you're at Harvard, for God's sake. I mean, people already figured out who you are. They've already figured it out. And they're offering you the world on a, on a gold platter. They take it. It's yours. Mm -hmm. Take it. It's like, great, man. Put mm -hmm. yourself together and deserve it. That would be great. And that's what everyone wants. It's what your parents want. It's also what you want. You know it. It's what you want. It's what men, it's what women want from men. It's what men want from women. It's like for you to be who you could be. And, and the highest faculty of the human being is articulated speech. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's the divine faculty. And there is nothing more powerful than that. There's nothing that's mm -hmm. even in the same league. And so if you, if you don't have faith in that, then, you're, then your priorities are misplaced. And I, I can't even understand why you wouldn't have faith in that being, say, Harvard students, because look where it's got you already. You know, you're already sitting on top of the world. So make, deserve it, make use of it, mm -hmm. right? Go out there and fix things up. That's what you need to do. There's lots of things that need to be fixed up. And what you want to do is burden yourself with so much responsibility that you can barely stand. And then you'll get stronger trying to lift it up. And you won't be asking, what should I be doing with my life? Or what's the meaning of life? Or any of that. It'll be self-evident. Mm -hmm. It's self-evident. At minimum, you can say, there's more suffering in the world than there should be, and I could probably do something about that. And you mm -hmm. can do something about that. So go do something about it. And then there'll be less suffering in the world. And then when you're 80, you can look back on your life and say, well, you know, there's less suffering in the world than there, than there would have been had I not existed. And, and you don't have to even have a, a sense of, of ultimate destiny or even any sort of theistic belief mm -hmm. to regard that as a positive good. Like, I think it goes beyond the, the mere pragmatic utility of addressing the world's ills, because I think we do live in a, in, a, in a world that has a transcendent reality as well as the reality that we can detect. But even independently of that, it doesn't matter. Hmm. It's like, I mean, this is part of the reason I like people, like Bill Gates is a great example, man. That guy, hmm. is, he's after five major diseases at the same time, right? He's trying to wipe out polio, he's trying to wipe out um, 
Malaria, yeah, exactly. He's trying to wipe out malaria. It's like, well, what should you do with your life? Well, you know, take a look at Bill Gates and see if you could do something like that. Mm. That would be good. <laughs> so, so, Dr. Peterson, you talk about this idea of ending unnecessary suffering and this idea of committing one's life to that. At a minimum. I mean, that's at just an obvious yeah. thing that you could do. And that does it for the first episode of Transitioning to University. I hope this was of assistance to some of you listeners out there. And like Robert said earlier, good luck.